and showing to them, even if, even if they're not thinking about where it comes from. It's powerful and significant. So thank you, people of Auburn, for uh, leading the way on this for us. Let's join together in prayer. Our Father, as we come into this Christmas season, it's a time of giving gifts, and yet it's the birth of your Son that we celebrate. You're the one that has given the greatest gift. We need you, our Father, for everything. Without you, we don't exist. Without you, we don't breathe. Without you, we don't have a Redeemer. But with you, we've been restored to relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you have given us your Holy Spirit so that we are led into truth that gives life. As we read your word this morning and as we think about some of the, the wonder of what you've done for us, we ask for your help, Holy Spirit. Again, open your word to us and open our hearts to be responsive to your word Help us to read what you're saying, but also give us hearts that are soft so that you read us and transform us to become like you. So come lead us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading today is found in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the Lord, angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. The season of Advent. Love, hope, joy, peace. Joy is kind of a, an odd one. Joy is kind of elusive. It is something that we know we should have. But you don't sort of wake up in the morning and decide, today I'm going to be joyful. Uh, You can't really make yourself joyful. It's similar to happiness, though happiness is a, a much more shallow thing. 
Happiness is really an emotion which is fleeting. It's good to have. But again, you can't be happy because you decide to be happy. Happiness really doesn't come about because you try to make yourself happy. In fact, when you try to make yourself happy, it seems to run away from you. If you're trying hard to be happy, all you find yourself doing is being busy. You put yourself in places where you've been happy at times gone by and you hope that you're going to be happy again. Uh, you have me time. You look for ways to do things which, which you think are going to lift you up. Uh, you go out and you play some games or you visit with somebody who is happy and you hope that'll rub off. But happiness, it turns out, generally happens not because you're trying to be happy, but instead because you've been able to start to focus on other people. Because you try to give something to someone. Because you seek to serve them. And in the process of trying to give something good to someone else, suddenly you find you're happy. It's not because you tried to get there. It's simply because... He did something good. Joy, we find in Galatians chapter 5, is one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't think that's an exhaustive list of the fruit of the Spirit, but it's a good start. And fruit comes about not by trying to make it. It comes about by remaining, abiding, living in. The fruit of the Spirit is not something we can produce. The fruit of the Spirit comes about because the Holy Spirit's in us and we live in a relationship with God. We can't produce it, but we can cooperate with its maturation. We cooperate with the fruit of the Spirit becoming our possession by choosing to fix our attention on God, to set our hearts and our minds on the things above, to know that righteousness is life-giving and so to choose to do what is right and to allow that fruit to start to grow in us. It happens also by serving when we step out to care for other people, we become like Jesus himself if we seek to do it in the Holy, power of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of his presence starts to become our possession. Every one of us have areas where we do things kind of naturally, easily, and others where we don't. And in the fruit of the Spirit, uh, Walking with God starts to become our possession, not because we're trying to do those things, but because we focus on our Lord and we seek to give ourselves away. I notice when I'm driving that self-control is not one of the ones that I have in abundance. Uh, I don't do crazy stuff when I drive usually, though well, sometimes I do, um, but certainly when I'm driving, I'm, I'm not too pleased with how everybody else is driving <laughs> I'm amazed at how many poor drivers there are within our city. 
and how inconsiderate they are and how they're not really thinking about my needs but only themselves as they're driving their cars. And sometimes I realize I need some self-control so that I obey the rules, so that I think about them. I'm not sure Sheila will be able to confirm this better than my own selfish perspective on it. But I think self-control is starting to become more of my experience than it used to be. And I don't think that's simply a function of age, though that could be too. (laughs) I think it has to do with God's character, allowing me to start to become like my Lord, starting to be lived through me. Joy doesn't come about because we try to be joyful. Because we remain in our God and because we cooperate with the things he wants to do and we choose to serve others. Hebrews 12.2, really an amazing verse and helps us in that understanding of joy. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him is very much a part of why he went through what he did. How could holiness set aside the privileges of holiness, set aside the privileges of the presence of God, And come and be one of us without ceasing to be God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he endured a contradiction. That he, a righteous, holy person, had to live amongst everyone else in the whole world who was not holy. There was a war, a battle going on. Not only did he face the struggle of temptation and not give into it, but he also faced the struggle of being in traffic. And finding everybody else was driving selfishly. And he chose to give himself instead to serve. He had a a picture of where things were going. The picture was us. The picture was people who would learn to love him in response to him. As we talked about that love story last week. A people who would learn to love God back. And become one with him. And become like him. Not people who are now learning how to live and drive in traffic sensibly. But people who actually are so free that they're living entirely for everyone else. Living for the glory of God. Living for the care of people around them. And finding that that leads to joy. Our Lord Jesus knew what would be. It's in process right now. We're giving Jesus joy when we gather in his name and worship him. We're giving him joy because we start to serve each other rather than to serve ourselves and to give our lives away as he has done. And we will give him joy because we'll live with him forever and be like him and serve and honor and participate in his kingdom. That joy was the picture Jesus had. And that's why he endured what he did. Rick Warren gives us a definition of joy. He says, 
Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation. So the verses that were read earlier from Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in all things. It's with the understanding that God is in control. It's not joy because we're jumping up and down happy and everything's going the way we want to. It's joy because God is in control. And because when good things happen, we can rejoice in his faithfulness. And when bad things happen, his faithfulness hasn't stopped. He's right there with us, guarding us at every moment, loving us and caring for us and surrounding us with his presence. And yes, he does cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Nothing is wasted. No disaster, no matter how horrible, is useless. Our God is so great, so powerful, that he takes disasters and he uses them for his glory. And he uses them to give people life. You have to know that that's the truth. Because terrible things do happen. But they're not useless. They're not just stupid, senseless things. In the hand of our God, they're used to refine us. They're used to bring other people to himself. The suffering that we endure equips us to help others who suffer. You know what that's like. You know when somebody's talking to you and says, yeah, I know how you feel. And of course, they have no clue how you feel until you actually come across someone who's gone through some kind of suffering that's similar. And they come to you and and sometimes they don't say anything. They just sit beside you. And you know they know. You know that they understand the dark place and that they found somehow how to survive. They discovered somehow that there is a joy that rises in our hearts because God is faithful and good and there, there is light on the other side. It's not wasted. There's a way through and not only when is there a way through but when you get through, you find yourself equipped. You find yourself able to do things you couldn't do before. If you didn't suffer, then your life stays at a shallow level. But because you do suffer, there's a new depth that's there and it's not not empty it's full it's full of the presence and the grace of God and joy starts to become your possession regardless of the circumstances we don't read about Joseph that he was joyful but I think he was I think he was because he understood some of the principles of walking with God and living in relationship with him We see a couple of things about Joseph uh, from this brief passage that we saw in Matthew chapter 1. This one is from verse 19. Joseph living righteously when you don't know God's plan. Joseph and Mary were engaged. In his culture, engagement was a formal 
recognized publicly act. The man and the woman were pledged to each other, but they lived separately from each other, usually for about a year before they were actually married. But the engagement had with it the same level of commitment that marriage did. And divorce was required if an engagement was to be broken. Joseph and Mary were engaged. And as you know, Mary became pregnant by the holiness of God settling on her. But Joseph didn't know that that's what happened. When it became evident that she was pregnant, Joseph wrestled with what's to be done. He understood the law. He understood that he had the right to divorce her and that probably he should because he wasn't the father. He didn't know how she became pregnant. He didn't know the circumstances involved. And so he wrestled with the issue of living in the righteousness of God while struggling with what to do. He dissolved the relationship. But he understood a principle of Scripture, and that is that mercy is more important to God than sacrifice. And then as we read in James in the New Testament, mercy triumphs over judgment. In Hosea 6.6, God says, mercy is more important than sacrifice. Joseph understood that. He understood not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of what was involved in it. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about Mary. He was thinking about how to care for and protect her. He didn't want her to suffer public disgrace. And so he wanted to find a way to be able to dissolve the relationship because it had already been broken, but not in a way that would harm her, not in a way that would draw additional attention to what she was already suffering. Joseph shows us living righteously is directed by the word of God, but it's also directed by the understanding of what God's talking about, the spirit that's involved. Jesus gives us some insight into the spirit of the law in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about different aspects of the law, not just what you see outwardly, but what's going on on the inside as well. So he says, the law says you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you hate a person in your heart, that you, then you're already breaking that law. To hate isn't as severe as murder. But the understanding before God, the issue of righteousness, deals right with the core of who we are. Joseph was a righteous person because he understood the core. Joseph also shows us what living righteously is like when you do know God's plan. In verses 24 and 25 of the passage. So the angel came and spoke to Joseph in a dream and gave him the specifics of what God was doing in this situation. Mary was not sinful. She wasn't being disobedient, immoral. She wasn't breaking the relationship with Joseph. She was being faithful to God. And when Joseph understood specifically what had happened, 
Then he became one who lived righteously by being a protection, a covering for Mary. They were married right away in public ceremony so that she had someone to protect her. He understood the issues involved in terms of holiness and so he refused to have relationships with her intimately until after Jesus was born. He provided that protection. He understood that righteousness is about obeying God and caring for people. It's not about following rules and regulations. It's about relationship. It is knowing God personally and deeply and then understanding how precious people are and choosing to give our lives away to serve just as Jesus does for us. That's what Joseph did. He had the right foundation for joy because he understood the faithfulness of God and because he chose to walk in a way that serves. We're in a season of joy. Sometimes this season is not very joyful for people. Sometimes it's hard. Something about Christmas. I'm not sure what it is, but the way we're wired in our culture, Christmas seems to make things more intense. Uh, when you're enjoying good stuff, it seems to be richer. And when you're suffering loss, it seems to be more devastating. Just the way it works. I don't know why, but it is. The other night, I was in a, a situation where I was with a man who, uh, I think maybe he suffers from some issues of mental illness, but also a great deal of loss. And we were in a group, we were singing Christmas carols. And I watched him in the process of it just kind of go lower and lower as, as the evening went on. Uh, I think it just stirs up so many things in us, good and bad. But joy, where's that found? The story I'm going to tell you uh, is written by a woman named Wendy Miller. It's a, a fictitious story, but she says of it that she was one of the characters in the story. And it really is about her life experience, even though the story is written fictitiously. Mary hurried to get her children clothed and fed. Mary had a job working cleaning houses five days a week. And she had to find a way to care for her small children. The older two girls she took to the elementary school. And three-year-old Becky stayed with her while she cleaned houses. At noon hour, the children would come to the house where she was cleaning that day, and then she would be home before the children returned from school. It didn't make much, but it was enough to allow her to keep her, her family and their needs met. Hurry, Becky, she called. It's almost time to go. Three-year-old Becky came carrying her doll, Charlie, which had all its hair loved off. 
She said, I'm ready, Mama, but we forgot to dress Charlie. Mary glanced at the clock and then dressed Charlie and wrapped Charlie in his precious blanket and put Charlie back into Becky's arms. And then she took her little family out onto the cold street. As they walked along the sidewalk, seven-year-old Laura reached up and put her hand in Mary's and said, I'm sorry, Mama. I'm sorry that I forgot to get Charlie dressed. Are we awfully late? No, Mary said, we're, we're not awfully late. Six-year-old Becky, or six-year-old Cindy, who was in grade one and thought of herself as all grown up, said, I don't know why we have to be concerned about that stupid doll anyway. In Cindy's mind, Charlie was a waste of time. Was Charlie a waste of time? Mary thought for a moment. Two years ago, maybe she would have agreed. Two years ago, things seemed to be going well. There were no problems, as far as she could tell. And then, one morning she got up, and there was a note on the table from her husband saying he was leaving. And all he left behind was a wife and three daughters and an empty bank account. For Mary, she'd been a stay-at-home wife. She hadn't had to be out and, and working and earning, and so the transition was a hard one for her after she recovered from some of the shock. For Laura and Cindy, well, they just adjusted as, as children do. They tried to be as helpful as they could and not to complain very much. For Becky, well... As long as Becky had Charlie in her arms, she was smiling. Charlie was everything to her. She always insisted that Charlie be dressed properly for the weather. And as for his blanket, well, one day Becky found the blanket in the parking lot. It was just a, an old scrap of a blanket. She picked it up, Mary washed it, and now it was Charlie's. Charlie was everything to Becky. Charlie was Becky's joy. So, was Charlie worth it? Yes, Mary decided. He was worth a great deal. When they reached the elementary school, Laura and Cindy hugged their mama, mama goodbye for the day and went into the school. And Mary and Becky continued on down the street to the Little's house, which was Monday's house for cleaning. As they approached the door, there was a, a great big wreath with a with a ribbon on it. Mary was prepared for what she would see inside, but Becky wasn't. As they walked into the living room, there was this massive tree with a silver star on the top that almost touched the ceiling. The tree was beautifully decorated with, with garlands and with different colored balls, and underneath the tree were brightly wrapped packages with ribbons on them. Becky just stood and stared and said, Oh, Charlie! Look at what Mrs. Little got. Mary went and hanged up her coat, and when she came back into the living room, she said, Now, Becky, don't touch anything. I won't, Mama, she promised. She climbed into an easy chair with Becky on her lap, and she spent the whole morning pointing out the different things that were in the room and trying to guess what might be in the packages. At noon hour, Laura and Cindy came and joined them, but they didn't spend time looking at the tree or at the packages. 
they knew that they weren't going to be able to have those things in their home because there was no money for such things. Money could only be spent on the things which were essential, nothing extra, and it hurt for them to look at it. The scene repeated itself throughout the week. On Tuesday at the Johnsons, Wednesday at the Harris's, on Thursday at the Krebs, on Friday at the Fishers. But on Saturday, the whole family was back home. Laura and Cindy were on the floor playing and Mary was doing some knitting. And Becky was thinking. Mama, why is it that all the houses we went to had a tree? Why is it that there were presents under the tree? Is it somebody's birthday? Why don't we have a tree? At that point, Laura and Cindy stopped playing and looked up, wanting to see how their mother would answer the questions. And Mary was prepared. She set down her knitting and picked up Becky and put her on her lap and said, you're a very smart girl. It is somebody's birthday. And then she started to tell the story of Jesus coming to this earth, of God becoming a human being and living amongst us, of the celebration of his birth and then of the sacrifice that he gave for us and his life and death and resurrection. After she finished telling the story, Becky said, Oh, I don't think I'd want to have to live in a stable. It must have been cold. But I sure do wish I could have been there and seen it. At that, Mary put Becky down and said, Come on, girls. We're going to get on our coats and, and go for a walk. You can see it. So they got dressed for the outside and they went onto the sidewalk and walked down the street until they came to a church. In the yard of the church, there was a huge crash that had been set up. There was barn boards and a star above it, ceramic figures and a manger. And there was everything that Mary had described. They stood and they stared. And Becky especially loved it. The cold started to seep in through her clothes but even when she was cold she didn't want to leave the next week was a repeat of the previous one it seemed like everywhere that Mary and her children went there was a celebration of Christmas that included everyone except them in the malls they heard Christmas carols being sung In parking lots, they would see people buying Christmas trees, trying to pick out just the perfect one for their home, strapping them to their roofs and driving home. In the supermarket, Mary took her lone package of spaghetti and went through the express line while other people had their shopping carts loaded with groceries and fresh turkeys. She laughed at them at the long lines that they had to to stand in but she would have given anything to be one of the people stuck in one of those long lines. For Laura and Cindy at school, it was much the same. The teachers were focused on Christmas, which was only to be expected. They had the children stringing popcorn and making different garlands for the trees. They were writing letters to Santa. At Christmas time, or sorry, at recess time, the children would talk to each other about the gifts that they expected to get Laura and Cindy simply did the things that they were expected to do and pretty much stayed to themselves. A bitterness started to creep into their hearts. 
For Mary, it was because of the Christmas her children wouldn't be able to enjoy. And somehow the children picked up on that and bitterness started to rise in their hearts as well. Everyone except Becky. Somehow it didn't touch Becky. She would spend her days talking to Charlie about Jesus, about the baby in the manger scene. She would beg her sisters to take her down the street to be able to see Bethlehem for true. And they would always drag her back long before she finished looking. Christmas morning was filled with snow long before the sun came up. Laura and Cindy awoke early and went into their mother's room and burrowed in under the blankets with her to keep warm. Mary kissed them on the forehead and wished them Merry Christmas. And they responded, Merry Christmas, Mama. She said, there isn't much that's there for you, but there is a little bit. Go and wake up Becky and I'll come join you and we'll open the presents together. They dashed off to find Becky while Mary got up and dressed. But all too soon they were back in the room and said, Mama, we can't find her. Where's Becky? Those words hit Mary like a truck. They started to search around the house frantically, checking every room, every closet, every corner where a a little girl might be. Mary said, Lord, I'm sorry that I complained about not having Christmas. I'm sorry that I wanted all those things. They're not important to me. Give me Becky back. They went out into the backyard and checked the neighbor's yard and still no Becky. They came back into the house thinking they must have missed her, but there was no sign of her. And then Mary noticed that Charlie was sitting on a chair looking out the window and his blanket was gone. Becky made certain that Charlie always had that blanket and suddenly she knew. She said to the girls, stay here. And she went out into the dark, snowy morning and ran down the street. When she came within sight of the church, there was Becky. Tears started to release down Mary's face. And as she approached the creche, Becky had climbed into the manger scene and had Charlie's blanket. And she was carefully arranging it over the baby Jesus. Becky was saying, we knew it was snowing. This is Charlie's blanket, but we decided to give it to you because Charlie has me to keep him warm. As Mary approached, Becky could hear her steps and turned and beamed a bright, innocent smile to her. Oh, hi, Mama. Charlie and I were afraid that Jesus would think we forgot about him on his birthday. Mary reached down and picked her up, put her arms around her, and now the tears flowed unchecked. She said, I did forget. Lord, I'm sorry that I forgot about you on your birthday. And now as she carried Becky back home, joy started to flood her heart. She got back into the house and Christmas carols were sung between the four of them. They started to decorate one of Mary's house plants, the biggest one she had. They fashioned a silver star and put it on top and they put all of the garlands that the children had made at school around it. And because the plant was so small, the few gifts they had fitted just perfectly under the tree. Best of all, 
Mary baked a cake and put candles on it. They held hands and they stood around the cake and they sang, Happy birthday to you, dear Jesus. Happy birthday to you. And as for Charlie, Charlie was warm in Becky's arms. This is a season of joy.